This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. This time, children ages 4 through 5th grade are dismissed for Children's Church. Teacher is waiting for you there in the back. We're so grateful for these volunteers that love our kids well and provide this environment where they can grow in Christ as well as have fun together. Uh, Thank you so much for those of you who give of your time, your Sunday mornings you sacrifice to make this happen. So before we dive in this morning, let me say a couple of words. Uh, First, I love Dave Cantwell. I love Dave Cantwell. Uh, Dave is one of our elders. If you were here last Sunday, Dave preached from God's Word. One of the things that it says about elders in the New Testament is a, a key qualification. In fact, the thing that defines them from just other godly men is their ability to teach. And so when um, I realized that I was going to be gone and Tim realized that he was going to be gone, uh, we um, just said, hey, let's, let's ask one of our lay elders if they would preach. And Dave probably volunteered within five seconds. Said, I'll do it. And um, I love Dave Cantwell. I love his heart for the Lord. I love his um, heart for teaching God's word. And I love that he wanted to serve our church in that way. So thanks, brother. I love you. Um, At this point, we're going to jump back into Nehemiah 5. We were out of it last week. And so if you've got your Bibles, don't turn there yet. Turn to Luke 18. That's where I want to pick it up first this morning. We're going to be in Nehemiah 5. But before we go there, Luke 18, that's going to be on page 877 of your pew Bible, if you're using the one in the rack in front of you. We're going to go to there, and then we're going to go to Nehemiah 5, which is in the Old Testament. And so let's go, let me just read a little bit from Luke 18 before we get into our study of the book of Nehemiah. Luke 18, starting at verse 18. It says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Let me just put this on the screen because I want you to see a couple of things. My clicker is not working. There we go. Thank you very much. So here's what's happening. This man is coming to Jesus seeking validation. He asks the question, but he's only asking really because he thinks he already knows the answer. The first thing Jesus says is what the young ruler thought that Jesus would say. It's what he wanted him to say. So Jesus says, obey the commandments. And then the commandments that he lists here are the second half of the Ten Commandments. They're the ones that are a little bit easier to see if people uh, are, if you're looking at the outside of a person's life. And so he says, you know, don't murder anybody, don't commit adultery, don't steal anything, don't, don't lie to other people, honor your father and mother. Now, feeling like he was about to get the validation that he had come for, this young man, young ruler, says, I've done all of that. So now in order 
to show, and Jesus could have said any number of things. If you look at other places in the gospel, he said, well, yes, but I'm talking about even doing these things in your heart. He says that in a, number of, in a couple of other places. But Jesus takes a different tactic here. In order to, to show this man the true state of his heart, Jesus points to another command. And it's part of what he says at another place in the scriptures. It's really what's at the heart of what all the law teaches. All of God's law, Jesus once asked, what does is, what is the law really boil down to? And he said really just two things. Love God, and the second, it's going to flow out of that much like it, love your neighbor. Actually what he says is love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus says that the young ruler why don't, why don't you do this? If you've done all the commandments, why don't you sell, why don't you liquidate all your assets, get it in cash, and go out and give it to the poor? And the reason that Jesus does this is because it then becomes obvious that Jesus, or the, the rich young ruler, doesn't love his neighbor. He loves himself. Instead of asking Jesus for help then, say, well, how do I learn to be generous and gracious in this way? The rich ruler turns away and leaves because in his heart he loves the things that he can hold in his hands more than he loves God and other people. The story actually appears in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, in Mark, this, this is basically it. You just get the story, but both Matthew and Luke want to make sure that we don't misunderstand what's happening here and conclude that, well, if, if the rich young ruler just had sold everything that he had and, and given it to the poor, then that would have been enough to save him. And so Matthew and Luke both say, well, no, even that wouldn't have been enough. And just so Jesus can be clear, he goes on to say that it's not morality, it's not by charity that you will be brought into the kingdom of heaven, it is by and only by the work of God. Jesus actually says it's, it's really hard for rich people. And when the Bible says rich people, they mean everybody in this room. It means everybody in this room. By a biblical standard, we are wealthy beyond anything the world has ever seen. But Jesus says it's hard when you're wealthy. So to all of us, it's hard when you live among the kind of opulence we do, when we live with the standard of living we do, when we live with most of our even wants fulfilled that we do, it's hard to keep our eyes on the kingdom of heaven. And the reason is, the more money we have, the higher our standard of living is, the more of our desires we have fulfilled by what we can buy and what we can download, the more stuff we can accumulate, the more we believe we, we can kind of insulate ourselves from the risks and potential harms of life, the harder it is in those situations to depend on God. And when you ask who will be saved, it's only those who are entirely dependent on God who will be saved. That's why Jesus says later, just a few verses down, what is impossible with man is possible with God. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who, not, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. In, in other words, you have to go all in on this. But if you do go all in on following Jesus, learning what it means to hold 
all the, the things even that are very precious to you with a very open hand. But Jesus says if you do that, when you do that, which will ultimately not even be of your own doing, what's, possible, what's not possible for you is possible for God. It will be more worth it than you can know. Salvation is the greatest gift that a person could ever conceive of. But none of that means that it's going to be easy. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's not going to be easy to be saved. And he says the same thing in many other places. And so here's my question that I want to ask as we launch into Nehemiah 5. And I'll show you how these connect. Here's my question. Why are we surprised when faith in God is hard? Why does it come to us as a surprise when it's hard to live with faith in God? Jesus told us that this is what it takes, being willing to leave everything behind. And so why then are we surprised when faithfulness, when following after Jesus, not just doing some version of kind of a, a feel-good, kind of give me help with the hard stuff Christianity, but, but otherwise trying to live my best pseudo-good, pseudo-Christian life, why are we surprised when actual discipleship of Jesus is hard? And more importantly, not just why are we surprised, but how do we persevere with a faith firmly rooted in Christ? How do we have a faith firmly planted in God? And how do we live in, in such a way where we're asking him to, to give us a heart for the things that he has a heart for? To grieve the things that grieve him and to take joy in the things that he rejoices in. How do we measure our faithfulness, not in ways that are easy and convenient for us, but how do we measure our faith and how do we have a faith when it actually costs us something? And that's the same question at the heart of Nehemiah 5. How do we faithfully follow God? How do we keep doing his will when it's costly? I want to read, if you want to flip over to Nehemiah 5 in your Bible, we're going to read the whole thing, but I want to read it in three sections. If you're looking for this in your pew Bible, it's on page 401, about in the middle of your Old Testament. So I'm going to read this in, in three sections. The first I'm just going to call a great, a great outcry. Second section, we'll see a faithful promise. And then third, a costly calling. Great outcry, faithful promise, and a costly calling. So first, a great outcry. Could we go to the next slide? My clicker is not working. Thank you, Marlon. Let me read Nehemiah 5, starting at verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. 
Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So doing God's will is, is going to raise some significant uncertainties. Part of, for, for me, part of feeling like, as I sense a God's call to do this and part of recognizing that God's call in my life was to do this, I knew that I needed to pursue more education. And so uh, about 15 years ago, I had a few big choices to make. I, I could graduate from college knowing that this is what I ultimately wanted to do. I could get some kind of a job. I could save as much money as possible before education. And then I could hope to go to seminary and work on a master's degree in a few years. And that sounds like a good plan, but here's, what's hard, here's the hard thing about that. We have in the room right now multiple seminary guys, and what they are doing, I have remarkable and profound respect for what they are doing because they have basically stopped real life for a couple of years. They have wives, they have children, they have financial and other real-world obligations, and they have put that on hold in a lot of ways to pursue God's calling on their life and to get educated so that they might bless the kingdom of God and the people of God. Trying to figure all that out and have any kind of a real family rhythm is really difficult. So here's the aside. Pray for our seminary guys. They need it, okay? That's the aside. It's hard. And I knew that would be hard. The longer you wait, the harder it gets. And so I had a choice. Do I wait a few years, but maybe then we get marriage, maybe then we get family, and it gets harder, but I can pay for it a little bit? Or do I just go now I have no money, but by faith, decide to take out some student loans and start knocking out seminary. So that's what I chose early on. I moved to Denver uh, from where I grew up in Minnesota. I had the promise of a three-month job that paid $1,000 a month. And then I thought, literally, I'm not making this up, I thought maybe I could deliver pizzas. And so I was going to try to figure out how to do school with trying to figure out how to live and work and live someplace. I still remember this. Now keep in mind, this was only 15 years ago. I'm, I'm not that old. My first year of seminary, I made $6,770. Gross. That's what I made. That was what was on my tax return as earned income. I still have it. Uh, my first year of seminary, $6,770. I shared the smallest house in the entire world with four guys. I did my laundry at a, a family uh, from church. They, they would let me come over and do, their, do my laundry. And my splurge was once a week, I would go to McDonald's and I would get their, like, a couple of their dollar double cheeseburgers. I don't even know if they'd still have that. Probably not. But that's what I would do. And listen, I was fine. God provided for me. I had a few fun years doing that. Um, just stories. We didn't have AC in the house. I didn't have AC in my car. Uh, and it would be so hot that we, we, we found this dollar theater where we live. I'm not exaggerating. We would pick the movie we would go see based on where we could just get into the theater earliest. We would get there an hour and a half before the movie and just sit there in the air conditioning, watch the movie. didn't matter what it was. We were just buying the AC. And we would just sit there until they kicked us out afterward just to be in the AC. I was driving my 1989 Honda Civic. 
Again, no AC, power nothing on that car. So loud, I couldn't hear the radio. I had, the muffler needed to be replaced. I had a hole in it, but I couldn't afford it. So it was so loud, I couldn't hear the radio as I drove around. But I had to drive around with the windows down because, you know, no AC. And so I, I loved it. I had, a great, I, had a, I had a great time doing that. And, um, but even to do that, I'd accumulate loans. I've still got eight years. I looked at a statement not long ago. I still have eight years to go on my student loans, and I graduated from seminary 12 years ago. So at the end of Nehemiah 4, there is this heroic, exciting conclusion where the people believe that God wants them to build this wall, and they will protect them. He will protect them from their enemies. And so they're building the wall, and, they're, and they're, they're constantly facing the threat of invasion and people coming to destroy their work and overtake them. And so they're building the wall with one hand, and they're holding their sword in the other hand. And they believe that God is doing this. But the mood changes quickly at the beginning of chapter 5. We're beginning to see the cost of building this wall. Really up until this point, there hasn't been a great cost. God has provided the way, God has provided the means, God has provided the people, and God has provided the energy to do it. But in Nehemiah chapter 5, there's a famine. The crops aren't going well, aren't growing well, and the people are starving. And what's making it worse is they can't go out and get other jobs because they're working on the wall, probably for free. So the farmers aren't farming because they're on the wall. And the metal workers aren't making tools and they're not being able to, to, make, to do things for their craft because they're building the wall. But that's not even the biggest problem. That's not the biggest problem for the people. It's that they are having to take out loans, and when they can't pay the loans back, they're having to work as, as kind of slaves or, or more like an indentured servant, and they're having to put their children into the same sort of indentured servitude because they can't keep up with the loans and they need to be able to live. And if all that wasn't bad enough, this is not happening between people from one nation and another, or from other places, this is happening among the community of God's people. The rich are taking advantage of the poor, and they're profiting under the desperate circumstances of their fellow Jews, their brothers and sisters in the family of God. There will be opposition to faithfully following the will of God. You can't be surprised by that. But there are certain kinds of opposition that are to be more expected and frankly are easier to deal with. And then there are others that are much more difficult. Let me just go through a few of these, but I want to end with this last one. Let me just do a couple quickly before that. This last one is by far the most insidious. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these. This will also be on the screen as well. The first one, I won't spend a lot of time here. Doing the will of God, you will face external opposition. That's Nehemiah 4. They wonder if they will be attacked, so they work and get ready to fight and be ready to fight all at the same time. And in 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul said he's being persecuted, and he even uses the words crushed for his calling to be a minister of the gospel. 
but he just considers that part of the job and, and even his great honor because that's what happened to Jesus. Jesus was persecuted and Jesus was crushed. And so to be that for the sake of Christ is an honor for Paul. If you are doing God's will, you can expect that some people around you are not going to like it. And you should expect that and you should plan for that and you shouldn't shrink in fear when that happens because it's actually probably part of the plan. There's another type of opposition. These ones, they get kind of progressively harder for us. The first, uh, I'm just going to call self-interest. Self-interest. This is where people are selfish. And, when people, and where people are selfish, it will get in the way of what God is calling us to do or doing the will of God personally. If others are asking what's in it for them, or someone new is being served, and if, if somebody new is going to be served, will they continue to have their own felt needs being met? There's going to be a breakdown somewhere in there. If somebody's just asking, what's in it for me, and how will I be served by this, and if something new happens or different happens, will I continue to be served in the same way? There will be a breakdown. Again, we look at our Lord Jesus Christ in John 13. He gets up from the Passover meal, the Last Supper, takes off his outer garment, and begins to wash his disciples' feet. That's the example of the leader we have, one who bends over to serve those who are well below him. And I'm not saying this because I'm concerned. I want you to know. I'm not saying this because I'm concerned about any particular problem here, and I know I would just venture to say that the vast majority of our church are wonderful, sacrificial, servant-hearted people. And so I'm not saying this with any particular thing in mind or even because I know of something or I, or I, I fear something specifically. But we need to be vigilant to guard against it. And I see it as I observe Christians sometimes. And that is a visible noticeable, serious self-interest that's not only affecting them, but it affects their family, it affects their church, and it affects their witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a couple of significant ways that I see self-interest affecting people's ability to do the, the will of God. One, one really significant way is an increasingly consumeristic approach to the local church. It's looking for a church that has the amenities and has made the, the stylistic choices that I prefer, and they meet at a convenient time, but if something better were to come along, or if I'm a little offended, I go someplace else that works better for me. Folks, where did we ever get the idea that membership and community among the people of God wouldn't cost us anything. Or we should always ask, Does, is this what works best for me? Where did we ever get the idea that we should make decisions about our life as a church based on, what, is this what works best for me? That's not a biblical idea. If you think there's anything close to that in the Bible, you bring me a verse, because it's not in there. There's a third kind of opposition, a little bit related to self-interest, and it's what happens 
when what is personal, when what is a personal self-interest begins to be seen kind of in group form. And this is the one I think that has the potential for greatest harm. So we can expect external pressure. We know that people are going to be selfish. There's, just, there's always going to be some selfish people in any group you get. Some people are going to be selfish. But what I'm really concerned about is when there is internal division, when factions form, that's where we're most vulnerable. In Luke 9, 49, Jesus' disciple John comes and tells Jesus that there's a man doing miracles and ministering in the name of Jesus. But John says, don't worry, Jesus. I rebuked him. I told him, cut it out. You're not on part of our group. Stop ministering in the name of Jesus. Again, kind of like the rich young ruler, he expects his validation. Expects Jesus to go, good. You get him. Make sure you tell anybody. Make sure you tell me if there's any others out there. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus actually says, and it's he, him who rebukes John, and says, if he's not against us, if he's doing things in my name, then he's for us, and we should rejoice in that. We should celebrate that. Now, what's probably happening is in Luke 9, there's a man who had been known to the community of Jesus. He'd followed Jesus around, but perhaps there were some things in his life. Perhaps he had responsibilities, family, whatever else, and he had to go return to those things. But because he was still a follower of Jesus, he obeyed the teachings of Jesus, he was ministering as one who was a follower of Jesus. And Jesus says, why would we, why would we not want this? Why would we want, not want more people who are gospel people, Jesus people, disciples, doing this? I love Martin Luther, a great reformer. He has been a guide to me as a writer and a theologian and a pastor as a scholar, we are all indebted to Martin Luther here. But one of the great things about having historical heroes is watching them miss it sometimes because you know you need to look to Jesus. And Martin Luther missed it a few times, big time in his life. One of them was uh, there was a, a, a great meeting that was called, weeks-long meeting, to decide what was happening when the church was taking the Lord's Supper. Now, out of the Reformation, there was a belief in the Roman Catholic Church called transubstantiation that the, the, the body and the blood of Jesus, that the, the elements are literally transformed, that Christ is physically present in the, uh, the, the bread and the wine that are part of communion. And then reformers began to wonder, is that not merely a symbolic thing? When Jesus said, this is my body, and this is a take and eat, and this is my blood, drink of it, did he literally mean that? And so there was a, a great debate that began to take place. And Luther believed, maybe not, remember he was originally a Catholic monk, he, he believed that it might not be that Jesus Christ was literally in there, but there was some, something mysterious and powerful that was happening in communion. Uh, Luther called it consubstantiation. And a man named Ulrich Zwingli, another great reformer, came to the meeting. And he said, you know, I, I, I see, and they talk from Scripture, a symbolic presence here. I don't believe that Jesus is here. I just think that Jesus is, uh, I, I think we're, we're meant to see him here. But he's not actually present in the, element, in the elements. And after weeks of arguing, Luther who was a hothead, there is no doubt that Martin Luther was a hothead, declared that he couldn't have fellowship with Zwingli anymore over this issue, that they couldn't possibly worship together over this issue. It was a disastrous declaration. And the early Reformation church, and long after it, has suffered because of that break over a secondary matter with long-lasting ramifications. 
divisions in the church, internal divisions among the people of God. There will be things. There will be times when we say we have to hold to what is central to us. We have a statement of faith as a church. Those things are non-negotiables for us. But there are plenty of things that we can talk about and even disagree over, and they will not divide us. The, the events of chapter 5 in Nehemiah are in many ways the most important things that happen in this book because the whole wall-rebuilding project is worthless if this doesn't get fixed. If the wall gets built, but these problems persist, if what's happening right now isn't dealt with, if there's no unity, it doesn't matter what happens with the wall. I think you probably know where this book is headed. I don't want to ruin it for you, but the wall is going to get rebuilt. That's going to happen. I'm sorry, I spoiled the end for you. It will get done, but it doesn't matter if the people aren't rebuilt. If there isn't community among God's people, it doesn't matter what they build together around their city. The whole point of rebuilding the wall is to unite the people. If they're divided like this, then the wall is pointless. So Nehemiah gathers the people together and they make a faithful promise. Faithful promise, Nehemiah 5, 6. So I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself. Um, I've tried that in my marriage and that doesn't work at all. Where did you get this idea? Well, I took counsel with myself. It's a nice way of saying I decided. Uh, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were, in other words, well, yeah, maybe you're buying, but you're buying the debt of people. You're buying slaves. You're buying indentured servants. I don't care if they're people from your own nation. You're still buying people. And they were silent because they couldn't find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. You ought not to walk, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to, to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and people did as they had promised. Now there's so much of God's mercy here. And you see this, because you have rich people helping poor people at great personal expense. This kind of generosity almost only happens among the people of God and where the gospel of Jesus Christ is a driving factor. And I want to explain this a little bit because how we see God 
and how we see ourselves will shape how we see or, or whether or not we want to really help other people. Now, in general, helping other people, truly helping other people is, is exceedingly rare. I mean, there are things that we could claim is help for people all the time. I think we can all celebrate that it's Girl Scout cookie season. I think we can all get, that's something we can all get behind together. It's Girl Scout cookie season. I got to be honest. First of all, if you're a Girl Scout and you come to my door, we will buy cookies from you. You know, please come to my door. Um, second, I can tell you all day long that I'm doing it to help these young women, you know, in their program. I just like the cookies. I'm just, I'll, I'll be really honest, I just like the cookies. Have we noticed also, there seems to be smaller and smaller boxes with less and less cookies in the box? Getting a lot of nodding heads. This is a problem. All right. We'll get some of our best people on it. Listen, your, your non-Christian neighbors probably give some money away. They probably give to some charities that they value. People recognize that they, they want to help single moms or, or if a friend gets injured. What is rarer? What is almost exclusively seen among the people of God is help that regularly, consistently, and gladly comes at our own deficit, where it costs us something. It's usually only people who have been redeemed and seen the great redemption that they have from God who have love for people, love for neighbors in such a way that even when it costs them, even when it costs us something, we still want to help because we follow a Savior who didn't just say love your neighbor. He said love your neighbor as yourself, and that's a lot harder because we spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves and what will be good for us. and We spend a lot of money on ourselves and what we need. And we give a lot of attention to what we want. I can't help but wonder how we would respond, though, even if the people among, of God are generous, how would we respond, we, we respond if something similar was brought to our attention? Look what's happening here. People have lent others money, and the debt is burdensome, so the loans are being forgiven. Land that was bought, or at least mortgaged, is being returned. Not because the debt has been paid, but because it helps their brother or sister. How would you respond if you had lent somebody money and you said, I'm just going to forgive the debt? How would you respond if you had bought something from somebody and just said, and just said why don't you just give it back to them? Mid-1700s, modern-day Massachusetts, Jonathan Edwards uh, was a pastor. He was becoming increasingly concerned about poverty in his town. There was a growing economic divide between the rich and the poor. One of the reasons was around Northampton, Massachusetts, most of the land had been purchased, and so it was more difficult for young families to get established. It was more difficult for people who are new to the area uh, to, to get a foothold in the community to buy a piece of property and have a home there. And so he began preaching often about caring for the poor in the area, and people in his church would come to him with certain objections. And so he did preach one sermon almost entirely about the objections that he was hearing to caring for the poor from the Bible. 
And so Edwards was hearing things like, and I think we need to hear these, because the objections of people helping the poor in the mid-1700s are no different. And I mean no different from, the people, from people's objections to helping those who are poor around them now. So people would come and say, well, people are needy, Edwards. People are needy, but their need is not extreme. I mean, I've seen somebody poor, and they have a nice television. I've seen somebody poor, and they drive a nicer car than I do. I've seen somebody who's struggling, and they have Netflix. To that, Edwards says, if we're called to love our neighbor like ourself, we should realize that we don't wait until our own needs are critical before we take action in them to help ourselves. And even if we're just looking at ourselves, we should stop looking at ourselves and look to Christ. Christ loved us enough to come and dwell among us. He did not, deserve, he did not observe us from some faraway place. He entered into and experienced our own and same afflictions. So just because the, extreme, the, the poverty of a person is not what you would clarify, classify as extreme, that's not how you treat yourself. He's, he said, another common objection is people say, oh, I have nothing to spare myself. I can't possibly help. Here Edwards points to the parable of the Good Samaritan and says that helping other people is often going to involve risk and sacrifice. And again, furthermore, when we, have, when we say we have nothing to spare, what we usually mean is we have nothing to spare without it affecting me without it costing me something. I have to lower my standard of living or go without something. That's what we usually mean when we say I have nothing to spare. He heard the objection that oftentimes people didn't show gratitude when they were helped or they were unkind. They were ungrateful for the help they were receiving. Edwards says that the trouble with that is that if you are only going to look for people who are kind, and gentle and abundantly grateful for the help that you are giving, it will be hard to find somebody like that because they rarely exist. By nature, the very reasons that people oftentimes find themselves impoverished are because they have complicated, messy, and likely tragic stories. And those kinds of circumstances and those backstories leave people hard. And because we're prideful people, we don't like it when we have to depend on the charity of others. And so you'll forgive people if you do a small kindness for them and they just don't fall on their face in gratitude to you because their pride has been wounded. And again, we look to Jesus. How often do we treat his free gift of grace with contempt? Are we abundantly thankful in every decision at every moment of the day? No, we are not. We spend a lot of time treating the grace of God with contempt. We continue in patterns of sin. We take it for granted. We don't join him in loving other people, offering that same kind of grace and mercy. And so if that was Jesus' standard for us, that you always have to be grateful for my help, none of us would be under the grace of God. I think the best objection that Edwards takes up, though, is what about people who are poor because of their own faults? It's their fault. They've made poor financial choices, decisions. They're, they've been unwise. They're foolish. And to that he simply says, yes, 
That is the case sometimes. Sometimes people are impoverished because they've made poor choices. But if we really believe our theology, that all we have is from God, then even the faculty for some of us to make good choices is a gift from God, and sometimes other people just simply don't have it. Sometimes, despite the best of intentions, they've made a bad choice. They've made a bad investment. Perhaps at a time in the past, they were too generous with somebody else. Maybe they took a risk and it backfired on them. There will be a limit. If people continue in a foolish pattern or they refuse to change or they won't accept good counsel, at some point, absolutely, we have to let people feel the full weight of their decisions and that oftentimes in the hopes that they will learn. But again, look at Jesus. What if he wasn't willing to help at all or gave up when you blew it a time or two? What if that was his standard? Well, I tried and they were foolish. I can't do anything more here, Father. What if that were the standard of Christ? And Edwards, finally, he puts this one point on that I think is important for us to remember, folks. He said, what about other people in the family? If you have a father who's foolish, what about a mother and children? Sometimes we know that we support a foolish father because there's a mom and children involved. Sometimes there's children and grandchildren. Sometimes there are people who have no ability to affect that change themselves. Even if parents make consistently poor decisions, if they have children involved, we do what we must for the sake of the kids. And so here's what I'm saying. I would rather we are people, and I would rather we are a church known for our generosity and our grace far more than our determination not to be taken advantage of. If we're going to err, let's err on the side of saying, yep, we lost some time. Yep, we got burned relationally. Yep, we lost some money. We were hurt. But we tried. And that is the example of our Savior. Sometimes poverty and injustice can feel like overwhelming topics. People start to wonder, what can I do? There's so, it's such a big problem. I don't even know where to start. Here's how you start. Let me just tell you right now, here's how you start. Pray that God would use you, look for something you can do, and be faithful to do it. That's how you start. Pray for something, pray, pray for God to use you, look for something you can do, and be faithful to do it. Make a sacrifice, take a risk, and leave the results up to God. It may feel like there are 10,000 people in need around you, and there are where we live. It might feel like there are 10,000 people. But if you can help one, and I'm not only saying financially, but the, uh, other things, maybe that's, maybe that's part of it, but if you can give rides, if you can watch kids, if you can be a listening friend, if you can cook meals, if you can help with budgeting, if you can help kids with homework, if you can do something for somebody else, and there's 10,000, and you do that for one or two people, now we're down to 9,998 people, and we're on our way. Do this too. Ask, ask God, is there somebody I know that I haven't really seen? Is there somebody who's suffering or struggling Maybe you're around them a lot, but I've never really seen them, or I have and I've ignored it. Is there a group in our community that goes unseen? 
And how would God have you maybe just start with one? One person, one family. We see how, how is this ever going to happen? Part three, a costly calling. Verse 14, moreover from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I, so this is kind of an aside. Now this is actually, Nehemiah is actually kind of taking a break from the narrative and he's saying, okay, let me tell you how this all ends. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them daily their, or took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall. And we acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now it was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember, for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. For this work, Nehemiah knows two things. First, he has to lead by example. So he doesn't want to be like previous governors to take what they've taken. He won't take it. But folks, leading by example is not enough for a man. You can't be a good enough example. Nehemiah knows this. He's just a man. He was a great one. And we can read a lot of his servant-hearted leadership and his sacrifice. He had remarkable faith. But if this is going to work... Nehemiah needed to be more than just a good governor. He himself needed to be governed by something greater than charity or hard work or the wall project or, or the good, administra- or good administration could possibly bring. Nehemiah needed to be governed, needed to live his life believing that the sovereign God who had called him and equipped him would also provide for him to faithfully persevere in the will of God, we need to trust that God is God. We need to trust that he is who he says he is, that he will provide for us. And even when we don't know how, that he will make a way. Because he has promised to, he has shown us that he will in Christ, and he hasn't let you down yet. When wrong is done, We need to know that we don't need to be the jury and the judge. He's just. Judgment judgment will happen. Our role is to be merciful. James 2.13 says that judgment will be severe for the one who shows no mercy. So show mercy because mercy triumphs over judgment. I know you might get burned helping someone. They might not be grateful. Maybe they violate your trust. Maybe they take advantage of you. We violate the trust of God and we take advantage of him all the time and he keeps coming back. He is merciful when we don't deserve it. This is the most important thing in Nehemiah. This is the most important thing in your life. Who are you governed by? Nehemiah was a great governor. 
but he wasn't good enough because he's just a man. Who are you governed by? Whose example are you following? Whose leadership are you taking? Who and in what are you trusting? Let's pray. Father, continue to show us great mercy and love. For we are sinners. And show us that because we have been shown great mercy and love, where we are sinners, may we be merciful to other people. May we be a people and a church who see what others might not around us. And we would be people of mercy because mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. Our Savior Evangelical Free Church is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about what these words mean, visit our website at osefc.org.